And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. We are about halfway through the first round of the NBA playoffs. We've already had a Joel Embiid incredible buzzer beater, almost buzzer beater to beat the Raptors in Game 3 and effectively wrap that series. But unfortunately... Maybe the biggest storyline of the playoffs so far has been injuries. Luka Doncic has been out the entire Jazz Mavericks series. Chris Middleton is now out for the remainder of the first round, according to Woj. Devin Booker is out for probably almost certainly the remainder of the first round against the New Orleans Pelicans. And what looked like the safest finals bet on the board, and no finals bet is ever actually safe, but you know if you had to put your money on one like six days ago, it was Suns-Bucks. And now the Suns and Bucks are 1-1, both of them, with home court disadvantage. And their best player in Phoenix and their, I thought, third best player this year in Milwaukee, but it's neck and neck with Drew Holiday, injured. And I think both of these teams are are still going to advance out of these series. But I, I also don't think, like Kendrick Perkins on NBA Today, picked the Pelicans in seven I don't think that's crazy. The Pelicans are rolling. They have a certain advantages in that series that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, and the Bulls, credit to the Chicago Bulls. I thought this series was a walkover. I, I think my official pick was Bucks in four, so you can light that one on fire. It's it's already wrong. I don't change my picks, but that that's wrong. You know, this Lonzo Ball's out. Alex Caruso was out for a long time thanks to Ted Cruz, Milwaukee Bucks shooting guard. Pat Williams was out almost the entire season. Zach Levine hasn't quite been Zach Levine, even in this series. He's been dealing with some knee knee issues late in the season. And of course, famously, it, the Bulls couldn't beat anybody good all year. They're whatever, it's oh and a million or one in a million against the top four teams in each conference, Nick Vucevic, who they traded a mother load for, had a really up-and-down season. I think he ended up shooting 31% from three. And it just kind of felt like, here come the Bucks, tanked into this matchup, ready to defend their title, been waiting all year for the Avalanche to come, for the, the next gear to come. And here come the Bulls with all the uncertainties and question marks and injuries. I just outlined with that bad record. Probably, you know, realize they're behind the eight ball. Uh, you know, this is a tough matchup. Well, next season will be healthy in this. And they came out with just not just playing pretty well because defensively they've been really good. And Caruso particularly has been awesome. But just like they came out, like, wait, wait, you guys don't think we can win this series? Like we have DeMar DeRozan who did not get phased at all by shooting 6 of 25 in game one. Did not let that you know, bring back his postseason demons because he's been a postseason underperformer his entire career. Did not let losing game one at the end sap their spirit at all. They came out fighting. They came out like, we can absolutely win this series. They came out, you know, Nick Vucevic had a huge game two. DeMar had a huge game two. Um, They've been just in Milwaukee's face, running smart offense, kind of targeting the right kinds of stuff in Milwaukee's defense, cutting off the ball, defending hard. Like, I was dead wrong about the Bulls. They have really fought hard in the series. That said, the Bucks have been disgusting. Disgusting. To the point that, I, I said this yesterday on TV, I'm like, is something is something wrong with the Bucks? I chalked up the first game where they had a gazillion turnovers. And by the way, they had a gazillion more in game two. They, would ha- they have a turnover rate through two games that would have been the worst 
in the NBA. I chalked it up to like game one. I chalked up to they just don't respect the Bulls. We've seen game one Bud, game one Bucks before, and they got the win. And I would have bet a lot of money that game two was like Bucks by 25. All right. We had our little hiccup. We escaped. We got lucky. Let's lay the smack down. And, and that's not what happened. The Bulls laid the smack down until the end when it got close. And just the turnovers are completely baffling. Passes to nowhere. Literally nowhere. Like, guys aren't where the ball is. Passes to the Bulls, who are not the Bucks. Um, And just so much unfocused offense. Like, multiple possessions where Giannis has Nick Vucevic on him. And Chris Middleton's like, cool, I'm going to take... Alex Caruso, the best defender on the Chicago Bulls. I'm going to go one-on-one against him instead of passing to you. So few possessions where they just run the Middleton-Giannis pick-and-roll, or better yet, the Drew-Giannis pick-and-roll because Zach Levine is often on Drew Holiday. And, and why aren't you just doing that 25 to 30 times a game instead of 10 to 12 times a game, which is what the frequency of Giannis screening, according to Second Spectrum, is like 13, 14 times in these games, which is really low for him. Why is Giannis taking pull-up bank shot jumpers like Russell Westbrook when he has Nikola Vucevic on him in a, in a cross match? And by the way, I liked the Bucks putting Giannis on Vuce and Brooke Lopez on Pat Williams and just daring Pat Williams to beat them. I thought that was interesting. It's something I would go back to. It allows me to switch DeMar Vucevic pick and rolls, which they didn't really do all that well. I thought Giannis was a step too far back on some of those switches or switched a little bit late, but it was interesting. And just like they just, why is Giannis taking so many spinning baseline fadeaways? It's just, they're just wasting possessions in a way that actually reminded me of the way they overlooked favorable matchups and took puzzling shots through the midway point of the net series. And of course, they crawled out of that, discovered something about themselves, and went on to win the title. And we all thought, well, well, that will carry over to this season. And in these playoffs, they've just looked bad. They have an offensive rating. Of 99 through two games. Now, part of that is bad shooting. They've missed a ton of open threes. And they're underperforming their expected effective field goal percentage based on the tracking data by, I think, more than any team through two games. So they'll get better. But the turnovers and the shot selection and just, you know, George Hill is out. Uh, Middleton's obviously now out. Bobby Portis, we'll see. He, He had to leave game two. They traded DiVincenzo for Ibaka in a trade I hated at the time, and all the Bucks fans told me I was crazy because Dante DiVincenzo stinks, and maybe he does, but Serge Ibaka ain't playing. And I understand they didn't know about Brooke Lopez and all that when they made the trade and whether Brooke would, would, would be back. Um, they just suddenly look slow and unathletic, which for a team with Giannis on it is is kind of remarkable. And thin, too, and just... I'm expecting them to come out tonight in Game 3 and throw the punch that I thought would happen in Game 2, even without Middleton, who, by the way, looked awful until he made a few jump shots uh, toward the end before the calf thing. But they better because these first two performances have been very, very dispiriting. Like I said, there's stuff they can do. They can go more under more picks. Like if Caruso is running a high pick and roll at the three-pointer, go under. Better shot selection. Their defense has largely been actually pretty good. Um, they've gotten lucky that the Bulls have missed a lot of shots, but they've made some defensive mistakes here. There are some bad help gambles, some bad uh, spacing on defense where two guys help on the same guy and a shooter's open. Like Kobe White got a three out of that in, in game two. 
failing to talk out switches. Like Vooch hit a, a pick and pop three late in the shot clock where they should have switched, and one guy thought they did, and Drew Holiday didn't realize it, and they blew it. But you know, I, I assume they'll get right here. But these first two performances have not been encouraging. And Suns Pels, the Suns should still win this series. They are an elite defensive team without Devin Booker. They have a lot of experience playing now after the season without one of their star guards or even without Aiton. They're just a better team than the Pelicans who are young and inexperienced. But I'll tell you, the Pelicans are killing them on the offensive glass. And C.J. McCollum and Brandon Ingram have been surgical, attacking Aiton in the pick and roll. And Aiton's been pretty solid, and he's coming up much higher on screens for C.J. than he is for B.I., which is smart. But C.J.'s gotten around him a few times and gotten into the lane and and caused some havoc. And B.I. has made some mid-range jumpers over him. But more than that, they're going at Chris Paul hard. They are hunting Chris Paul in a way I've never seen a team hunt Chris Paul really before. Hunting him as if he's a defensive liability, which he has never been in his career. And he's looked vulnerable, particularly to CJ blowing by him. And without Booker, I would expect the Pelicans to do a lot more of that. And just try to wear him down and wear him out. Willie Green obviously knows this team and this personnel really well. And then you have the sort of specter, as Kevin Pelton wrote about, you know, we all say, well, they've still got Chris Paul. Well, for 12, 15, whatever minutes, they're not going to have either Chris Paul or Devin Booker. They're going to have Campaign and Landry Shamit and Torrey Craig, and they're going to have to make something out of that. And that's not going to be easy, where they're really going to have to lean into the complexity of their pick-and-roll attack with the flare screens and the cuts and guys moving around because you take away Devin Booker, you take away the fail-safe. You take away the guy that's, hey, where's Devontae Graham? Barely playing, by the way. Where's Jose Alvarado, who is like a cat burglar but smaller than me? Where's a big guy that I can roast off the dribble? Where's a little guy that I can post and draw help? You take Devin Booker away, that's gone. And now you've got to run your system. And if you're totally system dependent, and maybe they can find Aiton for some post-ups when Larry Nance is in the game because the Pelicans are switching 1-5 to with Larry Nance, who's been sensational and has reminded everyone why he was such a big part of that trade. Larry Nance's presence in that trade changed that trade from a trade I didn't really love for the Pelicans. And we'll see even how it looks in two or three years. It looks great right now in the moment. We'll see how it looks in two or three years to one that I thought, okay, I, I can live with that. Larry Nance is really good. They're playing him at center. Revelation playing Larry Nance at center, something the Blazers basically never did. Um, maybe they can get some eight and post-ups on switches and lob it over the top. And they got JaVale on one of those in, in game two. Um, they'll definitely clean up their transition defense, which was ab- – but I don't even know what the hell happened to the Suns' transition defense in game two. I've never seen it like that. But they're going to have to run that system to perfection in New Orleans against a raucous crowd, against a team that's pretty confident, that's bursting with some bravado, that has survived Chris Paul torturing Jackson Hayes. Poor Jackson Hayes on Jay Crowder. That was a matchup everybody pointed to right away as it materialized, saying Chris Paul is going to put him through pick-and-roll hell. And not just as defending the screener, they're going to get him switched on to Chris Paul. And he's a great switch defender, but he's not a great switch defender if you run him through another pick and roll where he's defending the ball handler all of a sudden he gets lost and the pelicans have quickly moved on from him when it's gone badly and brought in trey murphy and i like that lineup for them a lot that smaller lineup or even with alvarado and then just herb and bi at the forward spots but 
the Pelicans have some answers. They've got some bravado. Like, I don't think this is going to be an easy series for the Suns, and it just shows you how, how fragile it is, and these injuries obviously suck. But through a week in the playoffs, a lot of what we thought we knew, a lot of what we thought was certain appears uncertain. And all of a sudden, you're like, is the, is the most likely finals Warriors Celtics now? Like, is that is that what we're going to be doing? Obviously, there's a long way to go. I'm not going to dive too much further into these games because they're they're tonight. By the time you listen to this podcast, they'll be in like eight or nine hours. And I always like to schedule these so they have some breathing space and talk about games uh, that are two or three days away. But th- that's sort of the early feel for some of these playoffs. Hopefully, everybody gets healthy soon and we enjoy some good playoffs. So let's talk about two of the more exciting first-round series that resume Later this weekend, Nets, Celtics, and Wolves, Grizz, starting with the one and only Sarah Kustak. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. The Low Post fans, listen up. Have you heard you can listen to episodes of this very show ad-free on Amazon Music included with your Prime membership? That's right. All your favorite The Low Post episodes can be heard on Amazon Music ad-free. But that's not all. You can listen to other top podcasts like First Take and Pardon the Interruption ad-free as well. They also have favorite shows like The Daily, Part of My Take, and Up First, all without ads. You know what this means, uninterrupted listening, so no more cliffhangers. Amazon Music offers the most ad-free top podcasts, so we know they definitely have something for you. And it's already included in your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to Amazon.com slash low. That's Amazon.com slash low to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, let's bring in... One of my favorite guests, a beacon of light and positivity in a dark world, Sarah Kustak of the Yes Network. She also hosts a podcast called NBA Flashback. Look for that. Ms. Kustak, if you had ever told me, if you had ever told me that a game featuring the Brooklyn Nets would have Bruce Brown and Goran Dragic combined for 41 points on 16 of 26 shooting, and the Nets would lose because Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving combined for 37 points on 8 of 30 shooting. That Goran Dragic and Bruce Brown, my boy Bruce Brown, would outscore Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And that's indicative of why they lost the game. I wouldn't have believed you, but here we are. The Nets are down 0-2 to the Celtics in what has been a riveting first-round series. Obviously, Jason Tatum's buzzer beater wins Game 1. This series resumes Saturday, tomorrow, in Brooklyn, for game three, um, you still think this is going seven. Tell me why. I think there's a lot of ways to look at this. First of all, thanks for having me, Z. You know this is like the highlight of my life every time I get to be on the low post. Um, 
I think there's a lot of layers to this. And I think if you're looking at it from the Brooklyn side of things, you're in both those games. You had a chance to steal the first game on the road in a raucous TD Garden and felt like you didn't play your best. And game two, despite the discrepancy in score being a little bit larger, I think they had a much better handle on that one until closing it down the stretch. And, and I mean, you brought up the key players. I don't think in any world you would anticipate that Kevin Durant, after the lack of efficiency in game one, typical to what we're used to out of him, that you would see that in game two. And, and same goes for Kyrie Irving. You think about an off night for those individuals, but, you know, 10 points for Kyrie, 27 points for Kevin Durant, though most of those coming from the free throw line, 18, a 20 from the free throw line. Uh, I, I think for all of those reasons, there is a level of thinking that when you get back to Brooklyn, that's Boston did what they're supposed to do, take care of the home court. That's an opportunity for the Nets to do so. And I think so much of this series, we talked about those complimentary players. You bring up Bruce Brown, Goran Dragic, Seth Curry is, you know, someone who's uh, made an impact, but I think he's still been struggling with that ankle injury. But overall, I think the depth of this Nets team, in many ways, there's guys who have made an impact uh, similarly for the Celtics side of things. But you imagine there'll be more comfort when they get to home. So I think it, I'm not saying, you know, I, I really do think it'll go seven. I think it'll go the length. I think give so much credit to this Boston team, credit to Ime Udoka for the game plan that he's come out with. This is a excellent, excellent team that's got a lot of continuity and a ton of belief and resiliency. You saw that in the way game two played out. But I think overall for the Nets, feeling like you have not touched or scratched the surface of being at your best, being at your sharpest, and doing so on the road, that there's reason to think that you will be able to continue to stretch out this series. I get that. I get that. I also, games one and two, particularly game two, are kind of like how I thought the series would go. I picked Boston in six, so I thought it would be a long series. I'm, I, I'm sticking with that because I don't change the picks based on what happens. I will say this feels closer to Boston in five now than it does to Nets in anything or Celtics in seven. Um, just They're just a more complete, deeper team. They're obviously ultra-switchable, ultra-physical, and they're wearing the Nets down. And game two last night was they just – I mean – it, it felt like a, every game feels like if it were 60 minutes long instead of 48, the Celtics would win by more. Like, the longer the game goes, the more they just feel fresher, faster, tougher. And, you know, I don't think there's, like, any revelation, any massive adjustment waiting for the Nets or any any anything that the Celtics have done is, like, unsustainable. I mean, we can talk about the X's and O's if you want. But I think the Nets just – this. I, I said all along – to beat a team like the Celtics or the Bucks, uh, who do not look very good right now, you you need to be like clicking and complete and healthy. And the Nets have never really been kind of like any of those things. They're playing hard, like KD and Kyrie are trying. And this deep Kyrie had a crazy first game. The Celtics defense is just, I everyone's everyone's looking at KD not making a field goal in the second half of Game Two, and how impressive it is and how stunning it is. And yeah, it's stunning. But like you watch these games 
And with the exception of like, I thought Boston, I thought Brooklyn let Peyton pitch Peyton Pritchard survive on defense. They just let him kind of stand in the corner with Seth Curry. They're letting uh, the Celtics go with putting big guys on Goran Dragic in the corner and not running him around at all. I th- th- there is some stuff they can do. But on the other hand, like, it's, I don't think there are any, like, easy answers against this defense. It's just they've been by far the best defense in the NBA for, like, 45 games now. I think what's been most impressive, and this goes back to just the game plan coming in, and you can see it, and it's obviously been in some manner disruptive towards Durant, but just the level of – we always toss around physicality, but truly the level of physicality at every space on the floor – Game plan coming. We are going to bump him. We are going to make him feel us. This isn't just on the ball. This is off the ball. This is no matter where he is on the floor trying to come down pin, you know, come off pin downs on the defensive side of things, running him through ball screen. I mean, there has just been constantly someone in the body and in the airspace and somebody, some bodies, like multiple players. I think two, just the different looks and coverages. I think, you know, you have the opportunity with these individuals on the Celtics. They are all, I've said this quite a bit throughout the course of the series, they are all such good individual defenders. They've got length, athleticism, size. They're so strong. And so they can all stay in front. So trying to puncture even the perimeter of this offense has been really challenging. So you look at it. When did they get Robert Williams back? And he starts jumping around, throwing balls off the backboard. But, the but I mean, think about how often the Nets have not been to the cup and to the front of the rim and at the basket very often, even at that. So you think about Robert Williams, and I know that changed the dynamic of this Celtics defense, you know, throughout the course of the season and where they play him and how they play him and his ability to to roam around. But even just the concept of multiple guys go from Jason Tatum to Jalen Brown to Marcus Smart to Al Hort, Grant Williams coming in. Like you're running fresh, different players at Kevin Durant. You're tossing doubles at him. You're shading some. You got multiple guys shading where the help is coming. Like that's where I thought the difference, at least early on from game one to game two, but just the recognition of where is that double coming from? Where's the help coming from? Where are the readers from the back that are ready? They, they've they got the cadence of his dribble. They know when he's going to spin. I mean, there are so many small intricacies that you see. They they know that if he gets it in, if if he's got it to his release point, that it's about make or miss. And, and they've been in his body enough and airspace enough that that's been challenging. But the amount of strips they've had when he's bringing the ball up, when he's trying to get into his shooting motion, I mean, they, they are ready with active hands even throughout the entirety of that. And that to me is where, you know, throughout the course of a game, how much of a responsibility he needs to handle and has needed, uh, you know, to be the go-to guy for Brooklyn in many occasions. Like that is where they have been on it from jump. Well, you, he has, Durant has eight assists and 12 turnovers for the series. That's two games, six turnovers a game. That's really high level math. I've done there. 12 divided by two equals six. Um, it some of them have like made me wonder is there something going on with his handle like he's always had an incredible handle for a seven footer but a seven footer's handle can sometimes get a little bit loose because they're just so tall that they're so high off the ground some of these turnovers have been like he loses control of the ball he dribbles it off his foot he dribbles it a little too far out and someone just takes it it's been some of them have been a little bit strange by Durant standards it means like something is something going on there i don't think so i think it's just great defense and maybe fatigue because they've just been playing so many minutes the two stars for so long now but like you mentioned other than i i think 
when Pritchard or White is on the floor, they just have to hunt those guys because they have no other option. And and I thought there were too many possessions in the fourth quarter where Pritchard played for six minutes or whatever straight and Durant's isolating against Jalen Brown or Horford and missing shots that are okay shots for him because he's Kevin Durant, but you can't let those guys, the only weak links, and Derek White is not a weak link by any stretch of the imagination on a normal team, on the Celtics he is, uh, you can't let those guys just hang on the court untouched. But So those are like three, five, six possessions, and in a normal game, Durant probably makes one or two more of the shots that he missed on those possessions, so it's not like that damaging. To me, you just nailed it. Like If they're going to play every minute of these games with two of Brown, Claxton, Drummond, and you know Kessler, Edwards, or somebody who's the Celtics are not going to guard on the floor, like two non-shooters, we can debate whether Bruce Brown is a quote-unquote non-shooter. He, he's treated as such and often played, plays as such. Like if they're going to play two of those guys at the I same time. I can't believe downtown Bruce Brown, my guy. I will stand for him too. Look. I love Bruce Brown. I, I he was no, the captain I mean, of my Luke Walton All-Stars okay, last year. I love, okay. I'm love. i a big fan. I'm just saying he he's at his most 40% natural. 40% on the season from three. I understand. On like 1.8 attempts three per game. Three of four in game two from I understand three. all of that. I understand all that. He's most at home doing what he did in the play-in game against Cleveland, rolling to the rim and then hitting Claxton on lobs. You're not getting that stuff against Boston. And if you give the ball to KD and Kyrie on the wing – and those two guys are on the floor, two non-shooters on the floor. They're just, it's just too easy for the Celtics to help shrink the floor. And because they're really, really smart, they do that without conceding any easy passes, any open shots, any of the profitable stuff that the Nets want to get there. And I don't really see a solution to that other than Simmons would maybe be one of the non-shooters. And then you have a really explosive 6'11 playmaker. And we can talk about how we think he fits. Or playing Durant at center, like leave Simmons aside, like playing Durant at center with four guards, which just seems both, I mean, Nash tried it late in the game when they fell too far behind. I mean, I just don't think you can do that to Kevin Durant for a long time. Or like, are you dusting off LaMarcus Aldridge, which is something I mentioned in my preview of game two, that feels unsustainable. Like, I just don't know what what the answer is other than those guys are just going to have to make more tough shots. And by the way, that's how the Nets are built. To make tough shots. For as bad as their offenses look, Sarah Kustak, they're averaging 115 points per 100 possessions, which is a top three scoring rate. And they're outperforming their expected effective field goal percentage you know, on the tracking nerd data by a decent amount because that's what they do. They take tough shots and they make them. I just, I don't think it's getting any easier. And like the last thing, their go-to play when all else fails is put your two best players in the pick and roll or have them screen for each other off the ball. We saw the Celtics start to do that with Brown and Tatum down the stretch of game two because the Nets shifted the assignments and had one of their little guards on Brown a lot, and the Celtics finally leveraged that. You can't the, the Nets can't do that because you're just involving Marcus Smart and Jason Tatum. They're just gonna switch. Like there's just no easy answers other than make shots, hope to force turnovers and run, and hope the Celtics offense slows down a little bit. This is a tough, tough series. Yeah, a handful of things there off the stuff you said. One, I will say to that, to the statement about just hope 
Kevin and Kyrie make more shots. I, I think that's a, a pretty solid thing to bet on. They will. Despite the fact that, you know, Boston's defense is what it is. Um, but but Brown and Dragic and Claxton are not going to combine for 40 or 35 again in, in, in that case. Likely not. But, you know, in I think you look at some of the other, maybe, maybe not. But I do think that you have an opportunity. Like, to me, I looked at game one. And for as stout and excellent as the Celtics defense looked, and in particular against Kevin Durant, the net shot 54% from the field and 46% from the three-point line. A huge aspect of that game one was all the turnovers. Turnovers run out, untimely turnovers, unforced turnovers, um, a lot of second-chance points, obviously, in in the same thing which happened. They cle- which they cleaned up in Game 2. Second-chance points, the Celtics didn't, like, kill them on that in Game 2. Right, and then and they cleaned that up in the first half until the second half in terms of points off turnovers and cleaning that up. And I think, like, what it felt like being in TD Garden calling that game, obviously, in Game 2 in particular, it, it, the shifts and the swings, you know this, the energy in a building on a, a home floor when a big three is made or you get a steal and a a jam at the other end, like there was such timely plays and game winning plays. It felt like for the Celtics that just swung the momentum. And, and those are the type of things where in my estimate, if you can try and eliminate some of that stuff, the the easy routes, the easy looks, um, how does that change the complexion of what the Celtics half court defense looked like? And obviously for for Brooklyn, for as much as you know, you look at the isolation players that you have in Kevin and in Kyrie, they're at their best when when they're getting early offense and when they're on the run and when they get stops and get rebounds. And and you saw some of that rhythm and flow. I also think that it, you brought up um, you know, hunting down. Obviously the the switching invites, you know, that that type of isolation stuff. So you're searching, you're searching for the matchup that you want. But I think when it comes to the Nets offense, so often where they were giving Kevin the ball or where you get Kyrie the ball and, and try and space and balance things out. To me, so much of when they look good is when they're cutting and they have ball movement and guys are touching the basketball and you're not just you're not just running DHOs to to try and get the matchup you want. You're not just necessarily running these ball screens or pick and rolls or doing to to force the switch. You're doing it to actually shift and rotate the defense. And you're opening things up or finding a way to loosen things up and not allow the Celtics to shrink the floor in that type of way or make them have to adjust and think a little bit more. And I think their stretches, the Nets do a really nice job of that. But then I think they go through droughts where it's it's just an isolation player. You're just counting, hey, hey, Kevin, here, go do something. Here, Kyrie, go do something. And you got guys spotted up. And, and to your point, I think, with depending on who you have on the floor and how the Celtics are playing them or treating them, it allows for them just to keep the, to keep the paint clogged, build a wall, send who they want if they want to send a double of different players. And that makes it really, really difficult, especially when you're not getting easy baskets. Kevin's not getting easy baskets, not seeing it go through. I guess he had obviously a lot of free throws, but you're not getting those looks that get yourself into a rhythm. And so every single look felt like it was such an arduous task to try and figure out getting to your spot and getting that shot off. Yeah, they're just going to have to mix it up. And and they've tried. The Celtics' defense is just is just on it. Like they're just awesome. There there was a possession early in game two where someone tried to one of the stars tried to slip a screen, which is how you beat switches, right? Slip out of a screen. Celtics were on it. They either switched early or didn't switch. I can't remember. Then Kyrie and KD came together in like a warrior style split action where they screened for each other. Celtics were on it, and and it's like okay, 
Uh, there was another time where they had Bruce Brown and Andre Drummond set like a one giant ball screen between them for either Irving or Durant. And the point of that was, if you're not guarding our non-shooters, we're going to use both of them as screeners and have two shooters in the corner. They're just going to have to do more of that stuff. And like there was a playing game one where Seth Curry and someone else like set a double pin down for Durant in the corner. And so you get like guys of different sizes all involved in this motion offense. Like they're just going to need more... Also, just the the amount of range they have, them shooting the gaps. How anytime you think you have a passing lane or you think you have a driving lane, and, and how they're able to like you, you got nothing. They swallow you up. But I will say the fourth quarter, it felt in in I will go back and watch before uh, game three, but it felt like the Nets had created a lot of quality looks. They went through that you know whole stretch of I don't know how long it was that they they didn't hit a field goal. But I felt like there was a handful of, you know, just over and over. It was a good shot. They created a good shot. You'd normally see that go through. Durant was taking shots. It's like, that's a shot. That's a shot you'd want. Kyrie, Seth Curry, whoever, you go down the list. Um, but I felt like it was it was getting those shots. And that's where I don't know if the fatigue factor, the physical play, like how much that wears on these guys and has weared on them when you get to the fourth quarter. Because coming into the series – talk to people from Boston talk to you know about that that was an area of concern for the Celtics and closing out games and tight games and that's an area of strength you would think with having Kevin and Kyrie and it's been the exact opposite obviously game one was euphoric for the Celtics in in many ways as it would be for any team that wins at the buzzer but one of the reasons it was euphoric talking to some of their people afterwards was we struggled in close games this year then we got so good, we didn't really play in any close games because we just destroyed everybody. And so we didn't really get any reps at it. And so that was one of our first reps in a while, and we passed it, and they passed another one. Look, the difference between the two teams is only eight points in two games, right? The Nets haven't played a home game yet. Now, the Barclays Center is not exactly like 1984 Boston Garden in terms of fear factor, but it's still home. Um, but the difference really schematically is like the Celtics can get a mismatch anytime they want and the Nets can't. And and that just over time kind of wears on Brooklyn. And to the point about the spacing thing, there were two plays that I, I gave you as homework for, for this podcast. Back-to-back possessions F- where – Fail. But just to, but just to show you how on it the Celtics are and like what the margins are between success and failure for the Nets – so they ran on two straight possessions in the third quarter, starting around eight-minute mark for the nerds who actually want to look at them. And they're back-to-back Durant-Drummond pick-and-rolls, which is, again, one of the only weak points the Nets can pick at is give me a big guy, particularly if it's Tice, who's not as good as Horford switching. And Horford has been – I don't know what the hell happened to that guy. If he got into DeLorean and somehow went back in time, it's insane. Amazing. Um, so – if Tice drops back, I can shoot a jump shot. If Tice blitzes me, then Drummond rolls to the rim. I can hit him, blah, blah, blah. So here's how they line up the floor. Durant, Drummond in the middle. On the left side, which is the strong side because Durant loves to go left, you have Bruce Brown in the corner and Kyrie Irving on the wing. On the right side, all by himself, the place you'd normally help on, the weak side, is Seth Curry. That's by design so that if you're going to help normally off the weak side – Single side shooter, it's Seth freaking Curry. They run that play once. Boston sniffs it out immediately. Jalen Brown stays attached to Seth Curry, 
Al Horford helps off Bruce Brown in the strong side corner, which you're not supposed to do, but the Celtics sniff out personnel and play right away, and the play dies. Next possession, same set. Only difference, Bruce Brown is in the dunker spot under the rim instead of in the corner, which gives Drummond a much easier pass to make and makes Al Horford's help assignments a little more difficult and freaks Marcus Smart, who's on Irving, into like, do I have to crash down on Bruce Brown and leave Kyrie Irving? And the result of that is Jalen Brown panics and helps off Seth Curry and they get the three. But that's that's how hard it is. One spacing hiccup and you got nothing against Boston's defense because they're all, they're just so into personnel. They're into what you're doing. That's how hard it is. But uh, let's talk about Simmons, um, unless something from that struck you. No, I, the only thing I was going to say is it struck me when you were explaining it about staying in front. To me, that's, that circles back to the point about among many reasons the Celtics defense is so good, everyone can stay in front. Yep. Every individual. So the help comes from the concept of if you want to double, if you want to send a second, if you want to show more bodies, less about, oh, we got beat. I got beat by my man. And so that's where I think there's a great challenge in a lot of these possessions and where you're not seeing necessarily Brooklyn get to the rim, get to the front of the rim, get easy looks around that. Very Before often. we talk about Simmons, I do want to talk about one thing. I, I was very interested in the matchups that the Nets chose to defend with. And in game one, they did this weird thing where they had Seth Curry on Daniel Tice and Durant on Tatum and Bruce Brown on Jalen Brown. And the idea was, okay, we want our two best defenders on their two best offensive players. Then they switched back out of that in game two and put Durant on Horford, Drummond on Tice, and a guard on Jalen Brown, whether it was Seth Curry or Kyrie Irving, and Bruce Brown on Tatum, which obviously makes Durant's life a little easier. He's not guarding like a top 10 player in the NBA. Gets to rove a little bit off Al Horford. The call, and it helps you on the glass because you don't have a little guard on Daniel Tice so he can play volleyball. The cost is you have a small guard on Jalen Brown. And it took the Celtics until the fourth quarter to realize, you know what we can do with this? We can run Tatum and Brown together in actions. And if they switch, well, we have the the small guy on Tatum, who's our best player. If they don't switch, they're in rotation. And you wonder, is did Brooklyn see that and say, we, we got to go back to the way we had it before because they figured out something? Oh, but that has downsides for us that we all felt in game one. On the boards and, in particular. And if they if they stick with what they did in game two, well, they've got to know Boston's going to go back to that a lot more than they did in game two. They're going to go back to it in game three. I don't know what they're going to do. I just found that interesting. And if we and in game four, it looks like we might have the return of a very interesting puzzle piece for the Brooklyn Nets. What should we expect from Ben Simmons as someone who's been at these practices, been around this team? What should we, well, wait, I mean, practices, I don't even know what he's actually done. Um, what, what should we expect from him? Z, if I had that answer, I, I would be a very popular person. I don't know if anyone can truly anticipate what you're going to get from him. I think there's it spans the whole gamut of many who are super optimistic, those that are pessimistic. And, you know, to me, I just think there's a lot of areas to look at. One, this is an individual who is not played in a in an NBA game since last postseason. So what is that nine months or whatever it's been and tack on the fact we all know this, a, a practice, a four on four run, a practice where you're scrimmaging preseason game, regular season game, as opposed to a postseason game and the way the uptick of the intensity is 
in that type of game, not to mention, I know this is a first round. This feels like this is an Eastern Conference Finals. Um, how that translate? What's that like? What's that like for someone, both conditioning-wise, body-wise, just everything, uh, getting into that type of environment, I think, is one aspect to look at it. But in the same token, like his skill set, what he brings to the table, what you're asking of him, the role you need him to play – one fits everything that the Nets are in desperate need of with his size, his ability to push. He can ball handle defensively. Obviously that's, that's the main focus, the rebounding factor. Um, so can he be a portion of the Ben Simmons that brings those things to the table for a couple minute stretches here and there? Can he play 10 minutes a game? Can he play 15 minutes a game? And I think those are all question marks that it, until he gets on the floor, until he gets on a, in the game, that's, you know, it'll be hard to determine. But I think what you're asking of him and what the potential of what he brings to the table in a very simplistic form is something that can help the Nets and can help the Nets at this point in this situation in particular against a team that you look at their length and their athleticism and their size and, and what you need from them. I think that's the the hopeful nature of it. But I think to just think that he's going to come in and be some savior, savior for you, um, you know, it, that's a lot to think about an individual that has not played in game action in the amount of time that he has. Ben Simmons has not played a basketball game in 10 months, almost to the day. Um, and they're throwing him into the fire reportedly for game four. I wonder if they would even do it if they're down 3-0. Sometime, some team sometime is going to come back from a 3-0 deficit. So you got to go with the why not us. There's a part of me, though, that's, it, yeah, it's about it's about the team. It's about winning. It's about the series. But it's also for, like, Ben and him as an individual. If he wants to play, if he's ready to play, if he wants, because... Let's say you look at it and say, oh, we're, da- we're down 3-0. It's not worth it, which that probably shouldn't be the attitude that you're taking anyway. But if that's the concept, then then you're looking at someone who's not going to potentially get game action for another, what, four or five months. How long is the offseason? So I think, too, just if if he feels ready, if the team thinks he's ready, if by health standards he is, then I I, th- I do not think you look at it as, oh, is it worth it? It, it to me, it's it's worth it to take that chance or give someone that opportunity just as a player and as someone that you think could help. And I don't think at any point you ever throw out the series because you never know what can happen. Some team's going to do it some some year. Now, they're not down 3-0 yet, obviously, but I think you nailed it, by the way. Uh, we were offset on NBA Today on Tuesday or Wednesday. We were talking about uh, will he have a? Will he could Simmons hurt the Nets? Will he help the Nets? Like, is it going to be a positive or negative impact? And I said, honestly, I think it's probably going to be neutral. And RJ laughed at me and was like, oh, you're just sitting on the fence. I'm like, no, I just don't. I don't think he can really hurt the Nets. If like if Ben's, but I think you got the the minute total. Like, I don't think people should expect some. Ma- I, first of all, I think they're going to bring him off the bench if he comes back. Second of all, fifteen minutes. That's that seems right to me like that's a non-trivial amount it's not a ton but it's not nothing um if those 15 minutes are 15 minutes that would go to Kessler Edwards plus Bruce Brown plus Goran Dragic plus what's left of Patty Mills plus whatever like he's not even a limited Simmons is not going to hurt the team he's not going to be worse than the aggregate of those guys he might not be a huge net plus because he's a let's be polite say he's a very unique NBA player who's going to take some time to get used to playing with and he's going to need some time to get used to playing with his new teammates. But I do think I mentioned Durant at center 
I do think ultimately the ceiling of this version yep. of the Nets, assuming we get to see this version of the Nets, because you never know if you're going to see any version of the Nets <laughs> ever, ever. Like you might see a version for a second and then it disappears. The The ceiling of this version of the Nets is Kyrie, Curry, Joe Harris, and now we're talking next season, obviously, Simmons, Durant. That yep. lineup, whether you call Simmons the center or Durant the center or Simmons-Durant co-centers with three shooters at least one of whom has a little bit of size in joe harris like one of whom's a legit wing and not a point guard masquerading as a wing that's the ceiling of this team we don't get to see that this year because harris is out and in his place you either go small shooter or bruce brown who i will call a non-shooter and you'll yell at me i will Um, don't don't do it. I hope we get to see the training wheels version of that lineup when Simmons comes back because I just want to see how it looks. And it could go to solving – if Simmons is the only non-shooter on the floor, that at least solves that issue of how jumbled it gets when you have two non-shooters on the floor. So I, I'm just interested to see how Steve Nash uses them, but I think your expectations are appropriate. I don't think he's going to come in and save this team and save this series. Yeah, and I think and you kind of nailed it with the minutes or how that varies out. I mean, you take Kessler Edwards' minutes is, I don't think you. I mean, love Kessler. He's we'll got. See you next year. See you next year. Yeah, Kessler. very I mean, promising you, rookie season. We'll see it. We'll see absolutely. you next year. You know, but in kind of go the minutes of some others and just a, a bigger bot like to me a bigger body that can handle some of the physical nature of Boston while being able to do the things you need and pushing the ball, passing the basketball, handling it, rebounding, and having a presence on the defensive side. And what that looks like, the magnitude it looks like. But I also think too, when when you laid out looking in the next season, I mean you're looking at the the small, the the right now version and then the big picture version of okay, if you're thinking about next season in any capacity, Get a look. Get a look and see how things go. I mean, that's. I, I think there's a lot of reasons why, again, I, if he's healthy, if he's available to, if he feels ready to, I don't see a downside to it. See, you're talking about next season. I'm scarred, Sarah. And this matchup is – this Celtics-Nets matchup. I'm not. I, it, I already told you. This is going the – you're the one – you're the one – no, 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 no. It might go the distance. Well, I'll, we'll bet a beer on that. I don't think it's going the distance. I think it's Celtics in five or six. Um but this matchup, this this matchup a year ago was like the only time we saw a sustained Kyrie Harden Durant thing, and it was like holy, <laughs> what is anybody doing with with this? And now, of course, it's gone. So you mentioned next season. I'm too scarred, Sarah. I just assume now that something will go wrong for the Nets in the offseason, that a sinkhole will open underneath Kevin Durant's high-rise and swallow him up and this will be over, that That someone will demand a trade, that Ben Simmons will determine that he's neither left-handed nor right-handed but no-handed and forget how to shoot layups. I just, I don't know what's going to happen. I just assume it's going to go wrong. Maybe you just need to trade for D'Angelo Russell and Karis LeVert and start from scratch. I'm just nervous. I just, you talk about next season, I'm nervous. That's all. I want them to recover. I want this series to go seven. This team is, has, is really interesting. And by the way, given how Harden has looked, great passing, some okay finishes against Toronto. A lot of like he can't get by Malachi Flynn anymore. Like this trade, who knows how it looks in two or three years? If Simmons hits and they got these picks, it could end up looking great. I I don't know, but I'm scarred. What I'm saying is I'm scarred. 
Like I just I don't I I'm I'm trepidatious assuming anything about the Brooklyn Nets anymore. Z, you're a worrier, and what I need you to do is just take a deep breath and just stay in stay in the moment. Stay in the moment of this first round. You sound like Kevin Durant telling Bruce Brown to shut up about Robert Williams being. <laughs> Yo, can we just play? Can we just can we just? Stay, I love how stay the Celtics. I love how the Celtics made that out to be a thing. Like they put it up on the jumbotron. Like it was not even. It was not even controversial. It was just no. Bruce Brown being like, "Yo, Robert Williams is good, and he's it was out." The like thing we, that we, all we of us go were saying. It was the thing that everyone was kind of pointing. And Robert Williams is a really important part of their defense. I love this series. I really would like it to go more than five or six games to seven. I, I, I just think we've all been in the part of covering, watching different playoff series that one game or two games, you feel like you know exactly what's going to happen. Take you back to the, I mean, obviously due to injuries, but the second round with the Nets in Milwaukee last season. But it's, I think just the swing, the, the level of, High leverage situation, emotions, pressure, what the postseason means. This is what everyone's playing for. I think every swing, every win, every loss feels monumental. And it's a series for a reason. And so that's why it, I look at players like, I mean, Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is who he is for a reason. And so to me, if you're going to be confident about something, confident behind a team, and then with that to go along with Kyrie Irving, I, I just think, you know, you do stay in the moment and you think about Boston doing what they were supposed to do and taking care of home court. And then it's going to be really, really interesting to see what happens you know what? when it let's turns back it, to Brooklyn. Let's take baby steps, Sarah, one step at a time. Let's let, let's have the Nets win game three. And then game four is my favorite game is one of my favorite games in a series two one game four. Cause that's the game. That swings the whole feel of the series. Either we got a dog, either the, under, the, the one team wins and it's 2-2 or it's 3-1 and now it feels like a blowout. Let's have that game at Barclays and let's have a nice intense game for, and we'll just start, let's just start there. And maybe, maybe I'll see you at that game. Cause I'm going to be back. You think, will you be back from, from I will the be Sunshine back, State? I will be back in from LA on over the weekend. And if there's a game four and it's 2-1, maybe I'll trek because I'm a suburban loser now, maybe I'll trek into the city and, and loser, see the game. But it's it's sad that I don't get to see you as often in real life. Well, maybe I'll see you. That. Maybe I'll see you for game four. If it's three zero, I ain't going. I'll tell you that much. I'm not going to any sort of like you know. Then I'll bleh. see you for game four. All right, Sarah Kustak, Yes Network, NBA Flashback, Serious Podcast. Uh, just you're the best. I miss you. I can't wait to see you again. Likewise, see. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. 
All right, let's bring in Kevin Artovich to talk about what is undoubtedly the weirdest series of the first round. The Grizzlies-Timberwolves slugfest? I don't even know what to call this. The Grizzlies lead 2-1 after an improbable slash weirdly probable massive comeback in Minnesota that included a 21-0 run. 21-0. That's a football run. We've had fathers trash-talking each other. Shout out to Chris Haynes for an awesome segment that was even executed even better than its conception. Uh, we've got all sorts of stuff. we got John Morant flying around. We've got the two best big men in this series, in theory, playing their own separate game of who can commit the stupidest fouls at all times and foul each other out of the game. And because of that, in part, because Cat and Jaron Jackson Jr. have been so in and out of the lineup, this series still feels like it has a certain air of mystery to it. Like we've only kind of seen the real series in spurts, and that's always refreshing that we get to game four this weekend and there's some mystery. Kevin Artovitz, you're in Minnesota can you just, like, how was the atmosphere? The game opens with Patrick Beverly taking John Morant's lunch money, shoving the lunch money down John Morant's throat, and then robbing his house or something while he was recovering from having the lunch money shoved down his throat. The crowd's going crazy. And then all hell breaks loose and they go on a massive run. I don't know. What, what was it like in there? There is something about an arena where a lead that is massive is about to be blown. I was at the Clipper Grizzlies game in Memphis in 2012. That is the famous Nick Young game. And just being close to the floor as the air just comes out of an arena, especially if you're a certain kind of franchise, and let's just call it the, the Minnesota Timberwolves kind of franchise. Woe be gone. Let's call it the woe, woe be, be gone. gone. I think I used that word in the in the in the my first gamer um, of this series. I love woe be gone. And they are very woe be gone. They are gone. Um and it was just kind of fascinating, especially given the Grizzlies sort of symmetrically were, 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 were one of the most notable uh, victims of a blown lead in that Nick Young game. Uh, it's insane. I mean, so there were actually two comebacks, as Desmond Bain said last night. Like, he's never been a part of a game where there are like two 20-point um, leads blown. And uh, it was it was fascinating. The Grizz, sorry, the Timberwolves started the game at 12-0, the second quarter 8-0, the third quarter 7-0, and then in the fourth quarter, that was the midst of the 21-0 deficit. It was bizarre. I don't even know where to – where to – what was the – is there a – is there a Clippers-esque, like, sense of fatalism in the crowd? It's been such a hopeful crowd, and Anthony Edwards has imbued that whole franchise and that whole city with such, like, just – kind of peppy hope could you feel it getting could you feel all the the like oh god we just can't have nice things here or is there still a good spirit in the crowd at the end of the game i mean i think they're still playing with house money a little bit i don't think it is it is absolutely devastated it is 2-1 they can square it tomorrow i think there is you know this is a surprising season i i don't think this is clipper-esque in the houston game six way um this is not a team that won 40, 53, 56 games. It's a team that won 44 games, right? And Or no, I'm sorry. They won 40. What did they win? Zach, I don't know. But they were good. Um, So I, I don't I don't think it's that. Um, I, I just don't think it's that yet. Their seven seed is the other thing. So for the series, uh, Memphis has scored 113 points per 100 possessions. The Wolves just 104, which is about like the equivalent of the last ranked offense in the NBA. The Grizz are plus 24 through 
three games. And they're winning in the aggregate, kind of in some of the ways we expected them to win. Um, they're, they have, they're plus 28 in free throw attempts. They have fewer turnovers. They're average. They have 10 more field goal attempts for the series, which is compensated for Minnesota taking way more threes, which we knew was going to be the case. Minnesota's been able to get to their threes. That's their math advantage. So in the aggregate, in those senses, the series kind of looks like we thought it would. But when you drill down, I don't even know like what the hell is going on here or where to start. We should probably start with Carl Anthony Towns taking four shots in a playoff game. Um, what is going on there? Why can't they get Carl Towns the ball on switches and Memphis switching? Memphis, credit Taylor Jenkins. I, I love Scotty Brooks. Remember when Scotty Brooks left Kendrick Perkins in there to die? Perk, our, our yes. colleague now, just game after game after game. As the Miami Heat players were literally in the locker room pre, pre-game looking at the starting five being like, dude, again? Like, we we get this again? Like, wasted zero time just getting Steven Adams out of the series. And not just like, we'll start you and take you out. You're just out. And we're going to switch more. And Xavier Tillman saved our bacon in game two. Brandon Clark has been sensational. We're going to switch more. Obviously, the switching has removed what was Town's biggest advantage in the series, speed and pick and pops with Adams. But for Carl Towns to be just taken out of a game, even minus the foul trouble, which you knew was coming, what's going on and what can Minnesota do to get him jump-started? Because they have, they have no chance if he's not giving you 20 a game, at least. Yeah, I mean, first thing he can do is learn to defend without fouling. Screen without fouling. Well, let, that's, Drive that, without fouling. That's a, let's wait. That's the summer. Let's do some summer. Let, let, let's have a little off-season workout in L.A. where we do That's It's too late now, so let, let's go to other things. All right. Listen, he was very miffed after the game. And there was a question he fielded. Why only four? And he kind of cut it off and just said, "Next question." Ooh, I went back. There was watched. a next. There was a next question. Yes, I think it was our first next question of the postseason. I want to do a next question. Maybe when someone inevitably asks me, "Do I regret voting Nikola Jokic for MVP?" I'm just going to say, "Next question." It is the first next question of spring every year. It blossoms, and he did a next question. I I went back this morning. He has a little bit of a point, Zach. I went back and watched those possessions, particularly those high double screens they're running, which you know are intended just to kind of confuse an offense and make them make a terrible decision. And look, D'Angelo Russell did a nice job of being aggressive last night. He wasn't terribly efficient when it all was said and told. But the really good point guards, they make sure everybody eats. And, and too often, there was just an opportunity to move the ball to Carl on switches. I'm not a big... I'm not a big mismatch basketball guy, but sometimes the mismatch does offer a huge advantage for one of the most talented offensive big men who's ever played the game. Now, look, I mean, Carl's got to find some other way to do it, but I do think, God, there were opportunities after opportunities where, you know, Vanderbilt would dive, um, you know, Towns would go out kind of to the, to the elbow. He had an advantage. Memphis's shifts weren't ready. You know, there were moments. I think he has a small point. I don't want to say it's not his fault, but look, I, I mean, you just have to be more creative. It's my one issue with Russell. He's a nice player, but kind of watching him drive into traffic where Towns is essentially now, you know, on the kind of not by himself on the weak side, but has a potential one-on-one opportunity against a slower guy or a smaller guy. Like they do need to find him the ball. 
So let's go through some of the matchups. At times, slow-mo has been the primary defender on Cat. And slow-mo was kind of gradually squeezed, not out of the Memphis rotation, but from what was a central role a year ago to, like, behind DeAnthony Melton, who bizarrely did not play at all in the second half, although he hasn't played great. Uh, There's a lot of Zaire Williams going on that I don't really understand, like, why he's playing so much in this series and why Melton is playing so little, but that's a separate subject. Slow-mo is good at fronting, and he's tall, and he just mucks stuff up in there. On on the flip side, I kind of feel like his increased presence in this series— is indicative of kind of problems for Memphis that they have figured out how to solve, but we'll get to that. But then, and then you have Dylan Brooks is guarding D'Lo a lot. So when you switch to D'Lo, cat pick and roll, like Dylan Brooks, that dude's given no quarter. Like he doesn't have size for Towns. Towns is bigger than him, but he's he might be as strong as Carl Anthony Towns. He certainly thinks he's stronger than like four Carl Anthony Towns. And Ant Ant is being guarded by Desmond Bain a lot. That's the one where if you switch that one. I kind of want Carl to get the ball. There were two possessions in the second quarter last night, consecutively, early in the second quarter, when they switched that action. One, Ant just kind of dribbled to nowhere. And and Carl faded out to the perimeter with Bane on him. And the second one, Ant jacked the three with Xavier Tillman in his face. And in game two, you're being very nice to D'Lo. D'Lo took like five horrendous shots against switches in game two. Like, long twos off the dribble with 13 on the shot clock when Cat had a guard on him. And that's on D'Lo. That's on Ant. It's also on Cat. Like, get to the f***ing nail and ask for the ball. He finally did it on a long two late in the game last night that he hit over Bain that either needs to be a three or a drive at some point, but we'll get there. But, like, it's on everybody. But I I just don't understand why it's not like rocket science to get this dude the ball with Desmond Bain on him. I don't under, I I just don't really get it. Uh, He requested it repeatedly. You you start going through those half court sets and they're like, like his requesting of the ball. I mean, he, it it was, was a frequent occurrence. I mean, as an aside, I think they like Zaire's length. Of course they do. I just don't know like what, what he's not guarding D'Lo particularly well. He's not doing anything. I just don't, I just like did not really envision Zaire surpassing Melton in the rotation. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's more about their shifts, especially since they just got absolutely abused by Edwards as a slasher. Um, Edwards has sort of come down to earth and, and, and I don't love that he's become this one or two dribble step back shooter. Like he's making himself far too easy to guard right now. There was, Less of that last night, and don't get me wrong, I'll take anyone going four for nine from beyond the arc, but I'm not sure that's why he got into this business. <laughs> and, like, they won game one largely because he was slashing and beating the Grizzlies' shifts, and, you know, the Grizzlies adjusted, and because they're smart and they're good. And, okay, this is playoff basketball. Your move, and like, figure out how to exploit the adjustment. Um, I love Kyle Anderson, and... I, I think there's this very small Venn diagram, Zach, where one category is people who can tread water guarding both towns and smalls and you know dealing with switches, et cetera, the, the kind of defender Kyle is. And the second is who can run early offense and make plays off the dribble. And like in postseason basketball, I really like those. That's guys. where he's been at his best, particularly Absolutely. last night. They tried to hide D'Lo on him and he bullied D'Lo on a couple of drives. I actually feel like he could do a I don't really think you want to reorient your offense to like a ton of Kyle Anderson going one-on-one but he can do that to D'Angelo Russell and I think both of these teams 
have have dipped their toe in, but not all the way of hunting Russell on defense and hunting Morant on defense. Now, Pat Bev obviously went at Morant, but I'm talking about like when Morant's on Malik Beasley, run his ass in pick and roll. We've seen Ant Beasley pick and rolls, Ant Beverly pick and rolls. But yeah, dude, I like I, slow-mo early offense is a great call. That's where he's at his best. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the funny thing about Memphis is they run around, they run a lot of random stuff. And, and so like, what happens in real life is like the Wolves defended really well for much of the night. And so they're going to deny Ja, you know, on one of those dribble handoffs or, or, or when they do that little slip where it's a fake dribble handoff with Kyle and, and Ja will just kind of dive and yet two Timberwolves will pick him up. And, and when that happens, like I'm completely comfortable if Kyle Anderson is the guy who has to orchestrate the second option. And, and, you know, and he can pass off the dribble. I mean, Memphis is a more random team than any sort of conventional half-court team. And I, and I just think that Kyle, like, in that kind of offense, it's, it's a little bit like the old Spurs. Like, you just need guys who understand what the next pass is. Like, hey, there is an opportunity. Three, four dribbles in slow motion, and eventually someone's going to challenge me at the rim, and, and there's Dylan Brooks kind of streaking in from the corner. Um, there was a great possession. I mean, Dylan got blocked. Um, it was just a great play, but just Kyle kind of conforms to that random basketball, can make decisions, and again, obviously, he can deal with a switch. He can, you know, tread water. Um, against towns who I don't think love smaller defenders. I mean, remember Dirk being a guy who like, you know, you'd be best if you threw kind of like at one point like watching Catino Mobley shut him down or something, right? Like Steven they, Jackson was the famous prototype exactly. in the We Believe series. Right. And and I think that, you know, with Carl, I mean, we saw that with Batum in the play-in game. But I just, Kyle has kind of become not only their sort of, their, their switchable, can defend all five positions guy on the floor, obviously, in place of Adams. But he's also kind of, I mean, he's basically running points sometimes when, uh, when, when Jaws not out there. See, well, let's zoom out for a second. Here's a stat for you. Ready for a stat? You probably know this stat because you're on this series. Cat has six post touches in three games. Yes. He averaged more than six a game in the regular season. He has six in three games. These three games are three of his lowest post-touch games of like three of his like six lowest post-touch games of the season. Uh, by the way, a stat I forgot to give. This is a random aside. Apologies to the listeners. I'm a little addled. First round gets me a little addled. I had Sarah Kustak on and forgot to mention Durant. Only six drives in game two against uh, Boston. That's like his fourth lowest amount on any game this year. Okay, back to this series. Um, six post-touches for Cat. And... I, that's just a shockingly low amount. He's not getting pick and pop threes. He's just not involved. Part of that, I look at that power forward spot for Minnesota, and I just wonder how that's going to evolve as the series goes. Because when they have Vanderbilt there, it's just so easy for Memphis to front and help because he's just around the rim. And I just don't really know where. And then they played Vanderbilt at backup center last night, which I liked due to Towns' foul trouble. I like that better than Vando at the four. Um, I, I just like, we've seen McDaniels at the four. That's been pretty successful. Do we trust his shooting? Maybe we've seen a little Torian Prince at the four. I almost wonder if we'll see a little bit more Anthony Edwards at the four in smaller lineups to just open up the spacing for him. What do you, th- what do you think of how they handle that minutes distribution? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I'm a Vanderbilt guy and, and I always thought that he was sort of, that's what mature teams do. They have one guy on the floor, especially when you have three creators, who can kind of, you know, do the dirty work. Um, 
but you're right. He has made them a little easier to defend. Um, you know, if McDaniels was a more proficient shooter, I think the, 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 the task is easy. I might want Prince just because I like the ball handling. I, look, I'm, I'm not going to put him in the category of, you know, guys who can create like Kyle at that size. Certainly nothing like that. But I do, there's a little more dynamism there. I just worry about the rebounding. Like Memphis can just chew you up on the boards. Now, you could argue without Adams, it's not as pro- pronounced. Though. But Clark and Jackson, look, Clark Jackson has been, that's their best lineup. That's their best front court. That's been their best front court the entire season. Um, and that's a pretty good offensive rebounding front court. It's one of the reasons I like Clark better than slow-mo in that spot is that's where Memphis feels like this is the team they should be. Clark rolling hard as a lob threat, Jackson spacing, and Clark's just more explosive than slow-mo and can hurt D'Lo if they're hiding him there in ways that slow-mo can't. We'll talk about that lineup in a second. I, I wanna, I'll take one issue with that, though. Okay. And we haven't, we have, it's the first time we've mentioned Jaron Jackson Jr., who has made 11 field goals and committed 14 personal He's played fouls. 72 minutes. He has 34 points in three games. His and, threes helped them swing game two, but like that game was swinging no matter what. And this was my issue with Jaron Jackson all season and why I couldn't vote for him for Defense Player of the Year. He just doesn't play enough because he fouls all the time and he hasn't shot the ball well enough. As this theoretical stretch 4.5, like, where's the freaking stretch? Like, it hasn't come back since well, his no, injuries. And that that was going to be my comment. Like, the truth of the matter is, is he's be, he's dangerously close to becoming a wretch big, right? He hasn't shot the ball well in distance. And by the way, Minnesota doesn't care. You know, and he went one for, what, he went three, one for three, one for four, all the time. They're not guarding him out there. And and they're absolutely, so, so he's not providing the gravity that theoretically he should so that, you know, the, the the middle is empty for Clark to just sort of take off and collect. Clark is so the, good, the by the way. What a what I a story. Clark. What a weird career for Clark because he felt like he should have been a most improved player candidate this year. And you're like, oh no, this guy's just the guy he was as a rookie. And then they tried to make him into like a three point shooting corner three guy, and that didn't work in his second year. He's really really good. Yeah, I mean, look, I, they have. They have not done – they've only played eight minutes in this series with Clark and Anderson. Look, Jackson's going to be on the floor if, if he's if he's not in foul trouble, which is frankly always now. But I, I'm just sort of like he doesn't convert at a higher enough rate in perimeter – along the perimeter to really command any gravity. So I don't think he – he's not stretchy. He's retchy right now. And Minnesota doesn't care. Like they're not – I mean they are treating him like – you know, essentially, a, a you know, DeAndre Jordan out there. And and I can't blame them, especially when you have Morant coming into the teeth of the defense. Like, that's where you want to be. You've got to kind of be a no-middle team against them because they're such paint abusers, the Grizzlies. They just absolutely pound you. And it's like, okay, we'll take our chances. Like, Clark's not going to hit from out there. Jackson's not going to hit from there. Now, Kyle's not going to hit from out there. Steven Adams doesn't play. And, and so I do love like you, Clark is sort of a vertical th- a vertical stretcher, and he does that. Uh, I'm a huge fan, and he was so crucial last night. Now, Jackson had a huge three in the beginning of the fourth that sustained that run, um, which was just fascinating. You know, it was funny, weird. It wasn't like one of these explosive runs where it was like, wow. Yet it only lasted four minutes. Yet it was just sort of a – it was just consecutive possession, then a stop. Successful possession, then a stop. A couple free throws by Ja and a stop. Oh, Standstill layup by Clark, 
than a stop. Like it was, it was really odd. So I have more faith in Jackson's shooting than you do. I think the shooting he displayed a couple of seasons ago was closer to what he's going to be at some point. I hope so. And I think if they leave him open, he'll make shots. Or he'll I hope dr- so. or he'll drive and get to the lane. So I I to me, Memphis's best lineup, and they've leaned into it more as the series has gone on, is Morant. Bain, Brooks, Jackson, Clark. That, to me, is their best five. I might start that lineup from Jump Street in Game 4 if I were Taylor Jenkins. That lineup is plus 12 in 19 minutes in the series. You know how many minutes have played in the regular season? Six. I mean, Six yeah. minutes total. That's, like, astonishing, even despite the injuries to Ja and this and that, that that group only got out there for six minutes. I like. I just like that lineup. I like the way it looks. I like the way it feels. Um and I, I, on both ends of the floor, I think that's their best lineup. I, I think I might start it in in Game Four. It just, it just feels like the right lineup for this series. Yeah, and by the way, I, I want Jackson on the floor. I mean, defensively, again, when he is not fouling the hell out of the opponent, he is a, God, so effective to what they do. When he's roving off Vanderbilt, right? Oh, they put him on the worst shooter help. and just rove and rove and rove. Like he's one of those Giannis. Like there's nothing better than kind of a defensive player of the year candidate like as a help defender on a non-shooter who can then just play center field um or not so much center field i mean can just rove and and it's it it's such good rim protection now i'm a huge jacks i, I really love jackson's defensive player i'm and i think i'm with you i think i'd love to see him become a 36 percent three-point shooter again but right now he's just not been effective and i'm kind of with you on clark as the starter i do want anderson to have considerable minutes again I kind of like him almost as off the bench I like him when minutes when Jaws not in there um but you know I, I will always be sort of an Anderson loyalist I actually think he has the top plus minus in this series for them but again we're three games in I, I don't put a hell of a lot on that how do you think um Morant has played um and how do you how do you think Memphis has attacked what is, for the most part this season and for large chunks of the series, been a very aggressive Minnesota defense, blitzing, hedging, all that stuff at the top. How do you think they've looked on that end of the floor? I mean, I think Moran has been fine. Um, has he played his best basketball? No. Um, I didn't love his decision-making last night. It looked a little bit more like game one. But he's going to want to split uh, he's going to want to split those traps. And, and I just, that, that is just his like, – like, there's nothing in the world that – Ja Morant wants to do more than, than kind of split a trap. And and then it's sort of like what goes on from there. I, I thought Minnesota did a really nice job um, on their back line for the first, for much of the first three quarters. I mean, I, you know, Jenkins after the game was just like, he has not seen activity like that from an opponent. And it wasn't just Beverly. I mean, it was everybody. They, they really they were somehow able to both smother the perimeter and then still get And that's back. why I think Memphis has to lean a little bit more on that lineup because if you have Anderson and Clark out there together, that lineup's been good. It's just that they're going to be able to help and rotate and do all those Minnesota things. But he Taylor's right. I saw his comments today. They were they're just so athletic and mean and run around. It's 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 a scheme that was designed to protect Towns because he's not a traditional rim protector, though he was blocking everything in freaking sight last night. And it it turns out to be a scheme that fits Anthony Edwards and Pat Beverly and Jared Vanderbilt and Jaden McDaniels really well. Yeah, and they're going to need some – I mean, look, I'd love to see some more of those flares for Desmond Bain, right, where you can just – like, yes, they're keeping bodies in front of you on the perimeter. Just make it a little harder. And and, then, by the way, and and, listen, that that 
Bain has been, I think, their most consistent offensive player in the series, really. Um, Morant's been good. I, I, you know, I just, I like the playmaking Morant in game two. I, he just commands so much attention. And I, look, this is, this is the great sort of boost in his game coming up in the next few years is, you know, can he leverage all that attention? He can get into the paint. What is he going to do when he gets there? He got his, he got his stuff blocked like I mean, at least three or four times last night, another handful of turnovers, you know, on sort of out of control drives. I mean, look, that's seven or eight, nine possessions in a hundred in a 97 possession game where, you know, you're kind of just coughing it up. I'm not, look, Merritt's been great. He's going to be great uh, for the remainder of this series. I have no doubt, but there is some, you know, there's still some floor generalism, I I think, to be cultivated there because I I just, you know, the decision-making can be a little better and it was in game two. One thing they were setting those picks with Clark for him so high on the floor and Clark is really smart about not setting them at all and like slipping out of them. So it's hard to do this. I thought they were way too high on Morant and should have gone under those picks and just said, we're going to dare you to shoot three point shots that we don't think you want to take. Now he's improved at that. You mentioned the flare screens for Bain. I think you nailed it. I think with the way Minnesota plays, they have this aggressive trapping defense and then they have this other thing they do. They, I don't understand the rhyme or reason to when they do it, but like 20 possessions a game, they decide we're not going to play that defense. We're going to play the thing where we pull Towns out of the pick and roll midstream and we switch him out of it. So he starts, his guy starts to set a screen and you see everyone on the Wolves be like, no, no, no. And they switch Towns somewhere else. I don't really understand why, what the rhyme or reason for that is, but I'll tell you this. I don't think it's working very well because every time they do that, they seem to get confused. And Bain got a three out of that exact action in the left corner last night when Towns was confused about who he was guarding and Bain just kept moving. I feel like if Memphis just jacks up the action, the screening, the cutting, screen the screener plays to screw up the traps where they hit hit the screener's guy with a pick, just stuff like that, I feel like the Wolves will get lost. But like, I don't know. Have you seen a pattern to when they start doing that? Is it fouls? Is it? I don't know when the, what the deal no, is. No, I mean, with, with Towns, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's almost like a big man scram, right? It's like what well, you know, Boston used to do with I Kemba. call it the Brooke Lopez switch because that was the first guy that I saw. The, net, the Nets way back in the day did it a lot with Brooke Lopez. Oh, that's interesting. And yet, hilariously, now Lopez is anything but a defensive liability. I mean, obviously, not, not great against small, small, but... Um, yeah, it's, I, I would imagine it is it is to just at least try to mitigate the foul trouble with, with Towns. Um, also, frankly, he's not necessarily a guy you want backpedaling with an attacker. I mean, he's just not a great, I mean, the problem with, you know, well, listen, Carl doesn't go out looking to foul. The truth is he's not a very capable backpedaling big man defender. He's just not. And uh, it's just not his gifts. He's one of the most talented offensive big men. You and I are both a huge fan of his game, but not his fort. And, and it is it is a problem. One of the reasons I just love the Grizzlies is when they fell behind so big last night and the arena must have just been going crazy. And it just felt yes. like one of these – it was 47-21 at one point. And Pat Bev is just – Pat Bevin all over the floor. And the crowd's going crazy. There weren't there MVP chance for Pat Bev at the foul line at one point. I think that I think I heard something to that. I, I remember them for Towns. I don't or remember for Towns. Okay. Bev. Yeah. Um. And you just other teams in that spot. 
Like we've seen the Nuggets just fall into infighting and shoulder sagging and woe is me. And that's a typical response from lots of teams. Now, the Nuggets are playing a team who may be emerging as the favorites to make the finals. The Grizz are playing a team that got through the play-in. But when it was 47-21, you almost got to, I wasn't there. I'm not at the game. You almost got a sense that the Grizzlies were like, this is kind of fun. I can't wait to chip away at this lead. This is going to make it more fun when we win. And I was—I just love their their general approach to life. Right. Uh, totally. And it's funny because the general cliche in sports is, oh, they're one of those young teams that doesn't know better. No, no, no. The Grizzlies know better. This is by design. Like, like they are kind of delightfully cocky. What is Taylor Jenkins has this term? What not, not appropriately, respectfully confident. Actually, they're pretty disrespectfully confident in, in a beautiful way. Um, God, Ja after the game was so hilarious. Um, he was just, you know, he got booed every time, touched the ball. You know, that's something obviously we've seen before. I but, think we're overdoing know. that. What what did he do to deserve to get booed? That that used to be reserved for like Kyrie Irving in Boston levels of villainy and like very specific geographic or team based. Ra- now everyone is just getting booed all the time. Like, Embiid was getting booed in Toronto every time he touched the ball. I, I, did, I, why? Has there been boo inflation? I think the boo is being over. The boo is being overused. The boo. Every I like. You know what you, I like? Every time you, know you I touch like? it. I like a hiss. Like, I remember when I got up to New York for the first time, having grown up in the South, and you'd go to the movie theater, and there'd be a preview of just what was going to clearly be a stupid movie that was going to insult its audience. And you were in kind of a little bit of a critic's favorite movie. And what I loved, it was like, I just remember just being enthralled. Like, the first time I went to a New York City movie theater, like at the Angelica or something, and the crowd would hiss the bad preview. I like a hiss. Hisses don't. I mean, and I, imagine seventeen thousand people hissing versus just your how kind do you, of your how do you hiss what, like this hiss like that? Like hissing is kind of yeah. I, 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 we should introduce the hiss. So who hisses? Cats hiss and snakes hiss. Are there other snakes animals hiss. who hiss? I don't know. Um, I, I'm not a zoologist. If a cat hisses at me, I just say you cat. Stop it. Like, who do you think you are? If a snake hissed at me, if I saw any kind of snake in real life, I would run the other way. The cat, I don't need your, I don't need your attitude, cat. Get away. I, I'm a dog guy. Get on, I don't need the attitudes. I don't need the attitudes. Oh, I'm clearly a dog guy, but I do respect a cat's independence. Like, you can leave a cat for a week. So fine. Then don't live with me and use me for food and shelter. Go be independent. If you hate everyone and everything, go be a stray cat. <laughs> Hey, look, man, I got a golden, so I am, I am, I'm all in on the dog. But anyway, I, I, Ja was just great last night. He, um, uh, you know, they're disrespectful. I'm disrespectful. There, there's a he, he is so appealingly cocky. That's hard to do. Most guys, it comes across as obnoxious, or it comes across as staged, or it comes across as like brand building. And like with Ja, it's just authentic, and yet he's incredibly respectful. I mean, the people on the team absolutely love him. Like he he is a adored teammate. Like he was ranting last night that like you know in, in a kind of a really great way. Just that that his kind of similar to that tweet that he sent out about the award nominees. Like that his his teammates don't get enough respect. I voted Desmond um, Bain most improved player. He was number one on my most improved player ballot. I think he was two for me. I had Maxi, who I just I love his year. I just love his season. Uh, did you catch any of uh, Jazz 
Mavs any of the fourth no, quarter? No, I was I was standing through a clerical error. I've been doing television for ESPN post game, and uh, so I was doing that and then writing my uh, my newser. Uh, well, I have I have good news for you. You've seen the game before like seven times, so you don't <laughs> need to watch it. Because, Tell me. Because all that happened was the Mavericks put Maxi Kleba at the five, or sometimes Dorian Finney-Smith at the five, spread the floor, put Rudy Gobert in the corner, beat everybody on Utah from Mike Conley to Donovan Mitchell to Jordan Clarkson to Jazz Bear to Dennis Lindsay to Danny Ainge one-on-one in either scored at the rim or got a three, and you just start wondering – all the focus is on the players, like, and Utah's one-on-one defense isn't good enough, and Gobert can only do so much. Like, at what point do we start have to ask? Do we start having to ask, like, why can't Quinn Snyder find a different solution to this than just pray that his perimeter defenders can stay in front of guys one-on-one? Like, is it time to try a zone? Is it time to try the thing they did against Harden in the 2019 playoffs where they would let him drive and his guy would run out to the corner and Gobert would take him and they would do these kind of jump switches? Like, I just don't understand how you can do this over and over. And Quinn Snyder is a great coach. I voted him coach of the year, I think, at least once. I just don't understand how we could watch this movie over and over again and try your strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Hope, Like, maybe tonight's tonight, Donovan Mitchell stays in front of Jalen Brunson. Is not a strat. I just don't. I don't know what the strategy is. I'm not as smart as Quinn Snyder. I just was like, I can't believe I'm watching this game again. I can't watch it anymore. I can't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm and again, I didn't. I didn't see the game in terms of June and July. Like, I they do need to reconstruct that roster defensively. Actually, I mean, offensively, it's dude. It's if fun. they lose this series, they need to just reconstruct. I everything. I can't do it anymore. Right, but I, you know, it's like you can't have the blow-by crowd and have sort of a center in the corner who doesn't give you offensive punch. Like you can, like there's got to be some conversation. Like, where is your mobile five who can defend? Even if it's you know fifteen, twenty, twenty. They busted minutes. out Eric Pascal at the five last right. night and to some su- to some success actually. Right. Um, oh, that's interesting. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. It, it's, I just don't, that's not who I'm referring to, you know, when I think of mobile defensive fives. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do not have a solution for the Utah Jazz. Billy Paltz is not walking through that if door. They, if they lose, like, if Luka doesn't even have to play this series and the Jazz lose, and they're healthy, so there's no more, like, Oh, well, you know, Donovan Mitchell scored 37 points, but his ankle hurt, and Mike Conley was legit injured. That's true. Like, I, I just, I, I don't know. They need Maybe for a year they have to give the Pelicans the Jazz name back or something. There needs to be some punishment for just how unwatchable this is. All right, K.A., you got to go. You're on the most fun series, which means I'm probably going to force you to talk to me. It's not the most fun series, but it might end up being the most oh, fun series. Um, it's really fun. I mean, is there a funner series yet? I mean, Brooklyn-Boston's fantastic. Brooklyn-Boston has been awesome. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, that might be the only other candidate for for this for this honor um all right k enjoy minneapolis thank you